Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, May the 13th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, May the 16th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us. At koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 108th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos. There is no greater sign of humility than having an open mind. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and hopefully every Monday night as we seek to bring light into darkness in pursuit of right over wrong. Tonight's show features Scott Ritter and highlights a number of insights that may contradict some of our common perceptions about the Russia-Ukraine-NATO conflict. Enjoy. Welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. Today is Friday, May the 13th, 2022. This show will be rebroadcast on Monday, May the 16th, 2022. We are delighted to have back on the show Scott Ritter. He's a former United States Marine Corps intelligence officer. He served with the United Nations implementing arms control treaties with General Norman Schwarzkopf in the Persian Gulf War during Operation Desert Storm. And I think more famously in Iraq, he oversaw the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction as a United Nations weapons inspector from 1991 to 1998. He famously warned Congress and anyone who would listen that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And this was largely ignored and I think later led Scott to become a critic of United States foreign policy and challenge many of its public claims, including those in Ukraine that we speak of on the show today. So Scott, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Well, thank you very much for having me. So it seems like the linchpin claim by the United States narrative, government narrative, is that this conflict in Ukraine was an unprovoked invasion by Russia. Therefore, it was an imperialist enterprise, a unilateral aggression, rather than one of self-defense and to protect ethnic Russians in the Donbass. Just to get started, can you speak to the alleged documentation that indicated the plans for an imminent invasion that the Minister of Defense of Russia alluded to in the Donbass, where apparently there was some type of leak of Ukrainian documents that there was going to be an invasion in the Donbass by the Ukraine in the first week or so of, of March, and that this affected the decision by the Russians to invade Ukraine. Are you familiar with those documents? Well, I'm familiar with the claim made by the Russian Ministry of Defense. Um... They have released a single document, which 
purports to be speaking of an intent by Ukraine to launch an offensive military operation against the uh, breakaway regions of uh, Lugansk and Donetsk uh, sometime in early March of 2022. This document is not in and of itself a uh, battle plan. It is a document from a lower level of Ukrainian military authority alluding to the existence of a of a broader plan. And unless the Russians have that plan in their possession and haven't released it, you know, there's a lot of speculation involved. The Russians claim that they are justified in their position, but even without this plan, one needs to understand that there had been an eight-year conflict that was ongoing at the time, and that Russia had articulated a legalistic defense of their decision to attack using Article 51 of the United Nations Charter and the notion of collective preemptive self-defense. Let me ask you this, excuse me for interrupting, but the invasion also came after the OSCE had documented a 30-fold increase in the bombings coming out of the Ukraine front into the Donbass. So it sounds to me that there are apparently, like you said, I mean, I think, I think you said it very well, that we have not seen that documentation. Russia claims it has that documentation. And you combine that with the actual objective conditions on the ground, as indicated by the OSCE and the increase and such in the bombings coming out of the Ukraine. Does it sound to you as an, you're a military analyst as well, it, it seems like that very credibly Russia did sense that there was an impending invasion. There's no doubt that the OSCE documented a massive increase in the amount of uh, mortar and artillery strikes against positions in the Donbass and the Russian-held areas of the Donbass. It's also indisputable that Ukraine had before deployed a considerable amount of its offensive strike power into the Donbass region. Whether or not that was linked to an imminent uh, offensive operation, as the Russians claim, or was defensive in nature in anticipation of a Russian military action, you know, we won't know until uh, all the data has been uh, assembled, assessed, and, and presented to the public. And, uh, you know, Russia has a commission in place that is doing just that. They are interrogating prisoners of war. They are gathering doc captured documents. And uh, they will, at some point in time, if I know the Russians, release a uh, very thorough study with uh, primary documentation uh, extensively footnoted that will back up their claim. Mm -hmm. Well, in Putin's speech, he had a speech just the other day on the anniversary of the Nazi defeat by the Russian forces of, of what, May 9th, I guess. And in that speech, he claimed, and he claimed this actually as far back in December, if I can remember correctly, but that Russia has been advocating the creation of a system of equal and indivisible security. And to that end, in December, he said, of 2021, Russia reached out to the West for an honest dialogue to search for reasonable compromise solutions. And this is a quote, and take into account each other's interests. And this is all in vain, he went on to say, as countries did not want to hear us. And this means that, in fact, they had completely different plans. And we saw that. It sounds like he is indicating very clearly another dimension of the justification from the Russian perspective. And, and I guess that's really what 
I want to make clear that what we get here in the United States, the media messaging that's been generated about the Ukraine crisis has been really rather successful, the government and, and the media in generating a discourse about the Russian-Ukraine-NATO crisis. It's almost completely devoid of the Russian perspective. In fact, it chastises anyone that mentions anything contrary to the narrative as a Russian apologist of sorts. And so really, that is my interest in having you on, because it sounds like studying the Russian perspective, they had a number of real concerns. We'll get to a couple of them in questions to you. But this this next question really has to do with this system of equal and indivisible security that every country deserves to have their national security interest appreciated. And, and apparently, the Russian perspective is that was being denied to Russia. Can you comment and fill in the blanks there? Sure. Well, there's, I guess, two principal facets to this. Um, one, in keeping with what we had already discussed about the uh, situation in the Donbass, it used to be on the tip of most observers' tongues, nobody's talking about it anymore, but the Minsk agreements of 2015, the Minsk, Minsk two agreements, uh, there was a Minsk one uh, which got nowhere about a ceasefire, et cetera. But Minsk II was chaperoned by something called the Normandy Format. And that was France and Germany, together with Ukraine, with Russia as an observer, came up with a plan of action to bring to an end the hostilities in, in the Donbass region. When, when the hostilities first broke out in 2014, it was because Ukrainian ultranationalists, uh, backed by Volunteer armed formations composed of neo-Nazis, supporters of Stepan Bandera, who uh, was a Ukrainian nationalist who fought alongside Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany in World War II, carried out a 10-year guerrilla war against Soviet authority from 1945 to 55 that killed over 300,000 people, 100,000 Poles, 200,000 Russians, as part of an ethnic purification of Ukraine. I'm just bringing this up because we need to understand who we're dealing with here. These aren't innocent little life-loving people. These are Nazis who believe in racial purity of the Ukrainian people and that they have to purify Ukrainian blood by killing subhumans, Poles, and Russians. That's the truth. And these Nazis seized the city of Mariupol, uh, which is on the, the coast of the Azov Sea, and they formed a, an organization called the Azov Battalion, later grew into a regiment. People talk about that today because it's been incorporated in the Ukrainian army. These are Nazis. Mm -hmm. These are Nazis who then, after purifying Mariupol, moved into the Donbass to forcefully enforce new Ukrainian legislation that forbade ethnic Russians from speaking Russian. And the Russians said, no, we're not going to do with this. And they stood up and they resisted. And they got into a large-scale conflict with not only Azov, but then the Ukrainian army. And then they declared independence. Now, here's an important point. They appealed to Russia to absorb them. Russia said no. That's right. Russia said, nope, we respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. We are not going to recognize you as independent. What we will do is work with you so that your rights as Russian speakers are preserved, but you will be a part of Ukraine. Right. Uh, and that was the whole purpose of Minsk, too, was to create the conditions in which legislation in Ukraine would be modified to respect the special status of the Donbass region, 
to protect the rights of the Russian-speaking majority population in that region. Right. If I can add a backdrop to that, Scott, because I think this is really important what you're bringing up, is that Yanukovych, the polling by this guy, Robert Schumann, which has been made available, indicated that in that Donbass, in that Donetsk and Lugansk area, and in fact, in the Crimea area as well, over 80% of the population voted for Yanukovych, the very person that got cooed out. So in addition to having your president cooed out, you had this neo-Nazi-led repression. And I might add that the government that we put into power in that coup in 2014, the cabinet itself was inundated. Six to eight persons, including the national security chief, were connected to neo-Nazi influences, whether from the right sector group or Svoboda or otherwise. In fact, John Ryan, this uh, retired professor of geography and a senior scholar at the University of Winnipeg wrote a good summary of that, indicating that after the coup, the fascist and neo-Nazi parties, Svoboda and right sector, held prominent positions in the government. They formed a third of the cabinet, despite the fact that Svoboda only had 8% of the seats in the Rada, which is the parliament, and the right sector didn't even have one elected member. Can you continue to focus a little bit more? Because that was the other question I was going to get to a little bit later, too, was the depth of the neo-Nazi influence in the military and the military repression in Ukraine. Sure. Let me just finish by, again, pointing out that Minsk was designed as as a mechanism to bring an end to this conflict and retain the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And the right wing, the, the Azov regiment, uh, the military element of this right wing political movement, said absolutely not. They will never allow Minsk to be implemented. You know, one only has to look back into history and take a look at the rise of the Nazi party in Germany to understand how a um, minority political party can use chaos and dissension and violence and threats of violence to seize power. Because that's how Hitler's Nazi party seized power. Uh, they were always uh, in the early phases a, um, a a minority political position. They never enjoyed more than 20 or 30 percent of, of, of the presence in, in the German parliament, the Reichstag. But they were unified in their position. They took advantage of a fractured, weak German political climate. They exploited the fears and prejudices of German society. And ultimately, they were able to use a staged uh, act of uh, political violence, the burning of the Reichstag, to pass legislation that uh, gave them exclusive powers. And we see a parallel today in what's happened in Ukraine, where the right-wing nationalist parties have been able to exploit the weakness, the inherent weakness of Ukrainian parliamentary functions, a series of very weak Ukrainian presidents who are beholden to corrupt oligarchs more than they are to the Ukrainian people, and uh, the threat of violence uh, that has been empowered by this ongoing Russian conflict. Today, we have martial law. You know, all political parties have been outlawed in Ukraine except the right wing. I don't know if people understand that today. There is no opposition. The right wing has been empowered. They're even more powerful today. They hold more positions of authority in the military, in the police, in the intelligence services. They surround the President Zelensky. And they have a history of threatening Ukrainian presidents uh, with what they call mini Maidans. Maidan, of course, being the square in Kiev where the revolution of February 2014 forcefully evicted the duly elected, democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, from from power. 
So today we we have a situation where you, Ukraine is completely in the hands of the neo-Nazi ultranationalist political party, and the Azov regiment has become sort of the the standard <laughs> for right. the Ukrainian military in terms of nationalism and political ideology. But what's important to getting back to Minsk is that you know, Ukraine had promised to, to head down this path, but every president uh, from Petro Poroshenko, who was the, the president before Zelensky, he had said he would sign it. But then when he came back, <laughs> he was confronted by the right sector and Azov and told that if he signs it, he will die. Die. Not politically. I'm talking about die. Dead. Zelensky was elected with 78% of the popular vote, many right, of whom right. were Russian speakers, because he, he had uh, embraced a peace platform where he said he will negotiate with Russia to try and come up with a peaceful outcome. But he was told in a video by the head of Azov that if you sign Minsk, we will hang you by the neck until you're dead and hold, string your body up in the main thoroughfare of Kiev. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, that's the reality of this. So, you know, it, 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 people say, well, OK, that's internal politics. If you remember in June of last year, Joe Biden met with, with Vladimir Putin in Geneva, where they discussed you know, the buildup of Russian troops along the Ukrainian border. And one of the things that Putin asked of Biden is, will you compel Ukraine to carry out its obligations under Minsk too? And Biden said, yes. Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, came out and said, we will make sure that Minsk too is implemented. Now, this is all Russia wanted. They wanted to bring an end to the fighting in the Donbass. But instead, what happened is that the U.S. backtracked. And we got ahead of a situation, I believe, in October or November of last year, where the Russians convened a Minsk two gathering of the Normandy format with the goal of getting Ukraine to finally accept this. And when the Ukrainians balked, the Russian negotiator turned to the German and French counterparts who had promised them that they would pressure Ukraine to do this. And they said, will you get the Ukrainians to sign Minsk too? And the German went, no, we can't. Frenchman went, no, we can't. And the Russians said, then we're done. We're done. You killed Minsk, not us. That's when the Russians then said, with this ongoing conflict in the Donbass, you combine that with Ukraine's pressuring NATO to allow it to join the organization, to become a member of NATO, you were creating an unacceptable security threat, not only to the Russian speakers of the Donbass, but to Russia itself. And this is why Russia said you cannot have a situation where by invoking your rights to security, you threaten the security of others. Mm -hmm. Security is indivisible. And therefore, Russia said that Ukraine can never join NATO and that Ukraine must accept a neutral status in perpetuity, that that was a precondition for Russia not viewing the combined refusal of Ukraine to sign Minsk too, because Russia believed that the reason why they refused that is that Ukraine was preparing imminent military action to take control of the Donbass. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. The terror that you rightly allude to of if you don't do what we say, you're going to hang by your neck and etc. by these neo-Nazi and far right wing influences. I don't know the names of the people, but apparently some of the folks that were advocating for this rapport with with Russia were literally hung by their necks or not literally hung, but they were killed. In other words, a clear red line was put out there by the neo-Nazis that if you even negotiated with people that wanted to be at peace with the Russian speakers or Russia, 
your life was threatened. Your life was at risk. You died. It's interesting because the the false argument is, well, hey, Zelensky is is a Jew, so how could he be, you know, a neo-Nazi sympathizer or advocate? But you know, anyone that apparently has their life threatened or their family threatened or whatever may be compelled to act in different ways. I think the point you make is really important that Zelensky, when he ran for president, he said exactly what you said, that he wanted to have peace and reunite all of Ukraine. In fact, that's why he won. He probably got a lot of the votes in the East because of that stance, which immediately got reversed. But can you, I don't mean to keep going back to this neo-Nazi thing, but it's completely ignored and minimized in the West. We said never again was Obama's great words, but he's the one that actually put into power this far right-wing government in which actually people that were at Charlottesville, the, the RAM group, actually there was an FBI agent, Beerwith, B-I-E-R-W-I-T-H, I think is his last name, that testified that some of these guys from that RAM group went to Ukraine to get training. I mean, this is a high crime in so many ways. I just wanted to, before moving on, to just reiterate your interpretation of the influence of the far right as we speak right now in the military. And then lastly, I don't know if you're familiar, but apparently John Brennan, as a CIA director, went to the Ukraine following the coup. He went undercover. He denied he was there, but then had to admit when pictures showed up. And then, of course, you know, Vice President Biden at the time went, uh, you know, close to a half a dozen times over the next few years, went to the Ukraine this is clearly not a Ukraine government calling the shots, but it seems to be the U.S. calling the shots. And you have this far right wing government influence as a result of the U.S. calling the shots. Yeah, I think it's important for everybody to understand that the CIA has played a huge role in this. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um, I'm, I'm a realist. I deal with facts. Um, we know that during World War II, the Germans, the Nazis, had a military intelligence organization in the East. I think it was the 12th Department. I could be wrong on that. But uh, it was run by a general named Galen. And uh, they had extensive human intelligence uh, capabilities in Russia. And as the Germans retreated, they left many of these capabilities in place, so-called stay-behind units that were report on Soviet troop movements, Soviet political developments, etc. One of their most successful penetrations of uh, Soviet society was in Ukraine, especially Western Ukraine, where the organization of Stepan Bandera and, and, and his, his own ultra-Ukrainian nationalists had been allied with uh, Germany. And then as the Germans withdrew, many of them continued to be funded and supported by Germany uh, to carry out partisan-like resistance to Soviet forces as they, as they occupied or reoccupied or liberated Ukraine. In 1945, when Germany was defeated, the CIA, instead of denazifying German intelligence, they incorporated the 12th Department in its totality as an extension of the CIA. It wasn't called the CIA, then it was called the OSS. But Galen became an employee of the United States, and his organization became directed by the United States. And then from 1945 until 1950, 55, the CIA, first the OSS and the CIA, provided material support, money, training, ammunition. They would train up bands of Banderists, parachute them into Ukraine, 
to make liaison with existing resistance groups to carry out a brutal, brutal internal conflict. One, you know, the Russians have been documenting it, releasing this. The stuff these guys did, they would surround a Russian village and slaughter the 175 inhabitants, including women and children who were raped and murdered in front of the men before the men were killed with their eyes gouged out. This kind of stuff. They did it to Poles. They did it to Russians. They killed 300,000 people. And they did it with CIA backing because we had made a decision that supporting these kind of murderous thugs was in our interest because it somehow caused problems for the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviets eventually defeated the Banderists. It cost them around 40,000 troops to do so. But they did. But the Banderists didn't go away. They went underground. Many of them fled. They came to the United States. They came to Canada, where they continued to keep this hateful ideology alive with American support. The CIA didn't go away when these guys were defeated militarily. We continued to fund the Banderist movement, both in Ukraine and abroad, with CIA money up until 1990. Scott, sorry to interrupt you, but we have to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We'll be back with our special guest, Scott Ritter, right after this brief pause. Don't touch that dial. 